Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who expects a wardrobe malfunction on a podcast? It wasn't great, was no, it? No, no, no. We're big fans of Strictly. It's a bit like when one of the professionals gets their heel caught in their dress. Mayhem. This is why I, I very rarely wear heels in a dress. <laughs> there you are. And seemingly um, need some some experience in how to wear headphones as well. <laughs> we'll have to leave that to the imagination of the listener. <laughs> I'm Richard Delavan. I'm Claire Brady. And this is Wicked Problems. Hey, we did it. So this is our, our first proper two-hander as co-hosts and kind of having a discussion about this 1.5C target the new research from Imperial and from James Hansen has made a lot of waves in the last week. What was your reaction to that, Claire? So I suppose I've been in sustainability for such a long time that it isn't the first time I've had a bit of what feels like a bit of a slap in the face, despite all your optimism and hope. There still isn't enough change happening at the speed that you need to. And it's hard not to find that sort of takes the breath out of you a little bit. But as the eternal optimist, my sort of response to that is, okay, so that's not ideal. What are we going to do about it? There's no point just sitting there in despair and giving up. So I think that for me is the, okay, that's not the news we were hoping. How do we actually respond to that? What does this now tell us that we need to do? How can we then use this news that actually the time we have is perhaps less to really almost sorry to use the phrase, but kick people up the backside and say, like, we can't sit on the sidelines anymore. I I think this is a podcast, so I think we're going to wind up swearing over the course of this (laughs) thing. If you're not engaged and find yourself in an emotional state where you're going to use some colorful language, then you're probably not paying close enough attention. So if I swear like a sailor on this podcast, then I'm sure listeners might forgive me. But if not, there are other podcasts available. But anyway. And that, well, uh, I just want to say on that, then uh, everybody in my in my family knows uh, that I am, unfortunately, you can't take the northerner out of me. And uh, and so, yes, colorful, colorful language. Let's just say I had my daughter read a little section of the book we're going to talk about later. And the uh, opening chapter that she chose to read, let's say it had some colourful language in it. Uh, She might only be nine, but she recognised the word straight away and was like, I'm not sure I should read this word, mummy. But anyway, that's a story for another time. Well, we'll we'll come back to that maybe. But we tried to find 
some really smart people to talk me down off the ledge. So when I went to the Net Zero Festival and I went to day one and you went to day two, right? Yeah. And then day one, I managed to prompt James Murray from Business Green to ask the editor of Carbon Brief a question around this about getting reaction. Now, I was a bit unfair because the research had only from Imperial had only been out a day, although it had been covered on the BBC and other places. We'll play some audio from that. How should coverage take into account yesterday's Nature Climate Change research suggesting our 1.5 degree budget is kind of half what we thought, that we've got to get there by 2034? Or to broaden that out so slightly, how do we report quite how serious the threats are? Because as soon as we write stories like that, we get people accusing us of being doom mongers. But there's some scary realities. There's no avoiding it. Because <coughs> if that's the latest scientific finding, we've got to report on it, you know, squarely, honestly, and fully. I don't, I don't, there's no sugarcoating, there's, you know, but I, I do think you don't just want to be on the doom loop, just reporting the, do, the doom and gloom. You have to be doing, you know, what you guys do, what many of us do is report, okay, that, that's, the, that's the evidence, yeah. so what do we do? And there's, and there's lots of things we can do and should be doing. Tell, tell the truth, as Greta uh, Thunberg advised us. Um, thank you so much uh, to Leo. And it was really about, you know, the science says, and we'll follow the science, and, you know, we've been here before, and that's great, and he's been covering this for quite a long time. Um, and then I, I managed to get the same question put, um, a similar one, to Akshat Rati and Solitaire Townsend um, from Futera uh, at the Chatham House event, which also, just for benefit of listeners, most Chatham House events are, in fact, you're not supposed to attribute things. This one, um, they were recording and told us, that it was going to be made public at some point. So I'm not violating Chatham House rules. Important listener note. So just to give a flavor of that. It is very interesting that the fact that Net Zero by 2050 is something that here in the crowd we can take for The fact that until 2018, we didn't even have a report from the IPCC that put out Net Zero by 2050 as a target. Um, so that has gone into the consciousness that has been adopted by business. Uh, that we can all just play museum and move on in this audience is amazing. Um, in that period, which is uh, the six, seven, three years of uh, time and I've been a climate journalist, for me, every year has been different. I define my beat as covering solutions and false solutions, but really what I'm covering underneath that is how do we talk about climate change. And every year has been different, even though some of the targets have become a little more concrete how we reach them, what are the solutions that that will actually work, whether carbon capture has the potential to do 10 billion tons by 2050 or 1 billion tons by 2050. So many of those questions are getting to define and the answers are changing as time goes. So in a way, we are going to be stuck by what science tells us. And it is our job, at least as journalists, to be able to learn from the science and then tell people what they must know. Um, and so, as a job of a translator, in a way, from, from the scientists, from the experts to, to the mass audience, we have to follow what the science says. And the leaders have to follow what the science says. And that's where 2050 isn't an abstract idea coming from nowhere. It's informed by the science. Um, so, narratives are going to continue to change uh, as we follow down the solutions that whether we are tackling the problem at scale or not. I think absolutely, and I think it really matters in terms of audiences. There are audiences who you can talk to about the fact that every micro percent of a degree matters, and there's a huge difference between 1.5 or 1.2, etc. 
But my concern, my job, is that I'm very, very, very knowledgeable about how we talk about 1.5 deficit. Because according to my, my own research, which we did with Ipsos Norway, 14% of under 30s are now completely fatalistic, completely fatalistic. There's nothing that can be done. Um, these are not the kids who are out there um, raging on the streets. Rage is inherently optimistic because you're angry that the things that you believe can be done are being done. Fatalism is silent, and by the way, it's also comorbid with low levels of education and low incomes. So we've got this silent, growing problem of young people who think that there's no future at all and who keep getting these reinforced messages. And there's also very worrying research emerging that that, that comes together with antisocial behavior, uh, uh, self-abuse in terms of alcoholism, uh, 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 crime, like, like what's the point of trying if you're going to be dead for 2040, which is what this small group is. I'm more afraid of that than climate change. And while I was struck by Akshat being a bit nonplussed, um, and we could get to maybe some of the reasons for that later, Solitaire was, I think, a lot less sanguine about this could lead to an increase in fatalism. You've been in the business for a while. It's, it is talked about quite a lot, not just in the really pointy-headed circles um, of people who are so into the research that they're like used to being a little chop and change. And what worries me is this reminds me of um, a little bit about COVID. I mean, if you remember during COVID, we had all this different public health guidance, you know, whether you should wear a mask, but that changed. It changed dramatically. And we know now, and you could have known at the time with a grade school science education, that masks do work. And yet the guidance was, well, we don't think they necessarily work. Stay six feet away, wash all your food, once back from the supermarket, mm. all this other stuff. But the reason they, they dialed down on masks is because they didn't have enough and they wanted to keep them from hospitals. And that had huge consequences. It's it's a really good example, but I think it was actually picked up in, in one of the podcasts earlier this week with uh, Keita when he talked about being honest. You know, actually, if the story then had been masks do work, however, right now there's a global supply chain issue. We're doing everything that we can, but the people who need the most are the people who are actually caring for those who have COVID who are in hospital and we need to ensure the supply for them. So these are all the other things that you can do whilst we get the masks supply chain sorted out. And I think that equally applies to 1.5 and the news that perhaps we don't have as much time which is, yes, maybe that is the case. You know, it's still very early days. And I think there's some, you know, further work needed to be done on, on that to fully understand the implications of this of new findings. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us suddenly stop and give up on the 1.5 degree pathway. You know, for every organization or city or, 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 or country that's looking within the boundaries of what they can themselves directly control, what they can influence through their wider relationships, their value chain, to give up on 1.5 degree pathway right now absolutely ensures that we've completely missed it. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think it almost means you double down even more. And it's like, can we can we go faster? Can we go quicker? Can we actually do something to potentially reduce down the likelihood of this? So for me, I think, and, and maybe that's just because I perhaps lived through these things before where I would have wanted things to have happened quicker, you know, 20 odd years ago when I first started really uh, campaigning and, and, and working in this area. But that hasn't stopped the urgency. Um, if mm. anything, it's just made me want to try harder. So I think the same applies for 1.5 degrees. It's like, what else can we do within the boundaries of our own ability to influence? Yep. So I think Susan had a 
I mean, Susan's been around, right? Susan's yeah. been doing this for 30 years. Um, she's worked with Michael E. Mann. She's worked with lots of other climate scientists with government to be able to make some of these things understandable. And so she's lived through seeing 350 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere come and go and kind of kept going. And I think she had a really interesting metaphor of, of what to do in the situation, didn't she? Yeah. I mean, her highway metaphor is absolutely on the money. I think what's really important for people to understand and from a messaging storytelling point of view, it's not like at below 1.5, we're safe and beyond 1.5, we're screwed. It's more like we're on the CO2 highway. And if you miss your exit on a highway, what do you do? You slow down and you get off at the next exit. You know, if we are aiming for a particular destination and we miss that turning, you don't just keep going. You just, you, you, what's the next earliest exit that you can get right. off at? And I think that's really where we need to be focusing our effort is not just giving up now. 1.5, oh, it's all in question. It's so fundamental to so many strategies. The, all the work I've been doing in, in sustainability consulting is talking to companies about how they are going to try to get to that 1.5. What does it mean for them as a business? So I don't think we're going to give up on that language. And I think, I mean, what I really liked about it as a metaphor is that, you know, you have that oh shit moment where you're driving on, you know, and you missed your junction because the kids are talking or because you were thinking about something else entirely, which is usually me like going to Cornwall or something and miss a turning. You have that kind of cortisol response. You have the emotional reaction that that's part of it. So I think the, the sanguinity, the kind of like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's fine. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's fine. We didn't crash the car. But if you don't have that spike of saying, oh, shit, we missed it, we have to turn around, yeah. then you don't, you know, it's like, otherwise you just keep driving for the coast. It's just like she said. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I can think is going to be challenging is given how much infrastructure has been built up around 1.5, how do you build up a narrative infrastructure that everybody can kind of buy into and use that says, okay, we have to tap the brakes and then find the next available exit to do a U-turn or to get back to the place that we, you know, we needed to get to. Yeah. I mean, that's much more complicated to message that. Yes. And, but, but is it though? So we, bizarrely enough, I'm going to use a really random re- metaphor and it may not work, but I used to be a smoker and until I was ready to give up smoking, it didn't matter what anybody said to me. But the moment that I chose to give up smoking, I read mm. Alan Carr's book. And in there, he said, from the moment you choose to, to stop smoking, you have to think of yourself, you are a non-smoker. Mm. Now, you may be a non-smoker that occasionally smokes because mm. you lapse into bad habits. But you immediately then move back to being a non-smoker. And what he right. said, the phrase underneath that was, you don't give up on giving up. So perhaps mm. that's the, almost the ideology we need, which is like, we are going to have a net zero future. That mm. is the future. That is absolutely not in doubt. And therefore, every time we hit a slight roadblock, we just have to reset ourselves and go, what else can we do? How can we try better? How can we make sure that doesn't happen? So I think for me, it's that sort of, we've almost agreed that we need to get there. And ideally, it's a 1.5 degree version of that net zero future. And mm. we're going to aim for it as close as we can get. And every single action that we take that is trying to get us to 1.5 degrees get us cl- gets us closer to that. Mm. And if it's 1.6, that's a hell of a lot better than two. And if we aim right. for two, we could end up at 2.5. You know, it's so I think it's, it's that idea. Don't give up on giving up just because we've had some bad news. 
I think that's really powerful when you consider how many times we think about the addiction to fossil fuels as being the language we use around that, um, you know, and particularly any of us who also have been smokers in our past. Um, it's something that is really useful, I think, as a, as a kind of piece of mental machinery to understand the, the process, right? Um, but not everybody's going to kind of get that, right? And so the, one of the things I thought Catan was very interesting about is this issue about paternalism. Mm. And this came up in the COVID metaphor, but it's something that I guess is the, is the temptation, right? If you are an expert and you've been talking to your blue in the face, trying to convince people about this is the right thing to do, you know, you're going to look for the kind of cognitive hacks, the shortcuts that maybe border on something that winds up being deceptive. I suppose that the the trick is that if, if there's another side, if there are people who are just bound and determined to maximize the, the, the length of the social license for fossil fuels, they've been doing this for 100 years, right? They, they're really comfortable using whatever narratives or pieces of half-truths are necessary or the f fear, uncertainty, and doubt to say, well, the science isn't really clear yet, and uh, it's just a theory, and therefore we have to just keep going. Otherwise, people will get hurt, and so sacrifice is bad, blah, blah, blah. But so the temptation is we have a not necessarily fully transparent use of information in order to try to persuade people to take a, a course of action. So what I mean, like, so this, a little bit abstract, but this idea about paternalism that he mentioned, what's your view? I mean, it'd be nice to just say, we never have to dabble in that. We can always just be honest and truthful with people and they'll just see the right thing to do and they'll do it. But we also know that's not true. So how do we strike that balance? Oh, it's a really good question because the reality is that when people make choices that are not necessarily that, so, coming back to your um, the the fourteen percent that that Solitaire talked about, the reality is for for those people if they are making choices that are not in line with perhaps a one point five degree pathway in terms of the what they're consuming or or you know some of their choices around how they heat their homes or how they travel, those are probably not choices that they have much other ability to make in a different way because they are living in 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 means by which they don't have huge economic resources at the other end of the scale you've got that top one percent who are living incredibly mm. carbon intensive life so i think those are the people for whom you actually say you've got some moral responsibility to change how mm. you behave because you have the means the economic means to make very very different choices and you're making very um selfish choices about how how yours how your use of resources impacts on others paternalism to me it doesn't quite sit very well and i think the idea that sits better with me and i'm i've been speed reading um <laughs> speed reading the climate capitalism book so i'm sure i've read it in the but it's about this idea of thinking of what's the impact seven generations down and it also reminds me of something that used to happen at a previous place where I worked, where we called these, called these events Seeing is Believing. And we would take CEOs into either the environmental or social issue that their business was most contributing towards to give them that wake up moment. And mm. it just got me thinking, really, in a way, you almost need to immerse the sort of the, the executive teams and the investors who are still pushing the status quo, investing in oil and gas out to those low-lying islands, out to meet those communities and almost say to them, like right here in front of them, you mm. need to make a public declaration that you do not care about these people mm. or their lives or their livelihoods because you have a pursuit of the short-term profit that you can make from your business model and stand there 
and tell those people because that is the reality of the choices that they are making in their commercial decisions on a day-to-day basis. And if they are comfortable mm. to go and do that, then fine, it's on your it's on your conscience. But I think it's there's such a disconnect between the decisions that are made in those boardrooms and the reality of people's lives there that perhaps that idea of seeing is believing and that realization and and coming to to face to face with the mm. impact rather yeah. than expecting a more paternalistic approach. Anyway, I don't know. That's kind of where no, I'm no, at. I think that makes sense. I think the the other side of it is self-interest, right? I think that Alistair Campbell was really good about this. So for listeners who might have heard his whole keynote speech at the Net Zero Festival, and I think it chimes with things that that both Solitaire talks about, talked about at Chatham House and also that you know Akshat kind of splits the difference on in the book, which is the idea that you win these arguments or you persuade people to come along with you um, if they're going to be skeptical or not kind of wired for altruism. You know, if they look at the suffering of other people and they go, well, it's not me, so that's good. Or it's not my kids, so that's good. Mm-hmm. If that's not going to move you, uh, and for mo- and for a lot of people, it won't. Um, and those are the people who need persuading. Then you need to show them that their life is going to be better, f- cheaper, have more disposable income for other things other than energy bills. One of the great anecdotes that I love hearing again and again is that the F-150 Lightning in America right? One of the fastest selling vehicles in sports history. It sold and they discovered the reason it was selling like hotcakes in really, really red states was because people had figured out that the battery was so big in it, you could power your house for several days. And so they were hot wiring the car, the vehicle to actually hook it up to their house. It wasn't a standard feature, Um, but so many people were doing it, particularly in Texas, that they actually made it a feature of the vehicle after that. And so you've got people who actually, you know, couldn't give a monkeys about like how many wind turbines or solar panels or where the energy comes from. They're like, look, sometimes my, my connection to the grid is dodgy. Sometimes with a winter storm, we're going to have, you know, a power outage. And I just want the lights to stay on in my house and to use my laptop and whatever else. And so sod it, I'm going to just hook up my car to it. And that's why I love my F-150 Lightning, which is cool. And like finding like reasons like that, that should be a perfectly good reason why, you know, perfectly self-interested reason that you're going to move on to a technology that's just better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't disagree with that. There's, there is that sort of chain of people predominantly will care about themselves and their immediate family before they care about their wider community and then sort of last is the sort of the impact at a sort of global scale um and i think definitely there are going to be plenty of situations where you can find an argument that makes that case that there is a personal benefit still to be had but i think if we're saying that is going to be the only way that we can make this work then i i it that concerns me and Mm -hmm. i think whether i don't know whether we need every single person leading a large company that we want them to shift but we need a good proportion of those and there are enough people I mean you know in the book it talks about what happened at Unilever um you know in my previous jobs I've had the chance to interview CEOs and particularly there's one who that it was an alcoholic alcohol um beverage company um Mm -hmm. and they'd been on a seeing as believing they had seen how their product was being used by alcoholics because it was a it was high alcohol Mm. low cost. It was Mm. the most alcohol you could buy for the cheapest amount of money. Now, it was one of multiple uh, brands that they offered within their company. And they went, this is not 
how right. we want to make our money. And they delisted right. that product. They said others, they knew others. It's a bit like, you know, sort of divesting from fossil fuels. They knew someone else in the short term would move into that market. But they themselves said, of out of my company, under my leadership, no, it stops. We're going to shift our business model. It will be harder. We will need to sell mm. more to more customers, less alcohol. Much right. more tough business model. Well, I, I think that's, that, that's a, I have Paul Pullman, that piece in, Akshat's book. So let's talk about Akshat's book. Yeah. Um, so first of all, climate capitalism, Akshat Rati, you know, Bloomberg senior reporter, and also pod, great podcaster extraordinaire with Bloomberg Green, or sorry, Bloomberg Zero. He has put together, you know, a what I think is a fantastic book. Um, I, it won't be everyone's cup of tea. But what was your original, what was your initial reaction to it? Um, well, I was mentally making a list of all the people I'm going to recommend should read it. Right. Um, because That's I think it's a, I think it is a really, really good read, actually. I, I, yes, you're right. It's not, it's not a sort of sit down and relax book, but he's, he's a good storyteller. It's a really good structure, the way each chapter kind of focuses on a concept of whether they are the fixer or the wrangler or, or the capitalist. So it's got a, it's got a really good theme to it, but it, it tells both the history mm -hmm as well as the delving into some of the technical aspects of each of the different aspects of the challenges that we're trying to face. So, no, I mean, I, I, I sort of set myself the challenge of, of trying to get it, get it read in time for today. Um, but actually, it's not been a chore. It's been right. really, really interesting. And I said to my husband, I was like, you need to read this. And he, do, you know, he doesn't work day to day in sustainability. But I said, you will actually find it really, really interesting because it goes through the history of how things have developed, stuff that we take for granted, stuff that we just sort of, we kind of know a little bit about that story, but we've never really fully understood it. Mm. Um, you know, and like, I'm just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm finding it really fascinating. I, I, I have to say, I've had the same thing. I have purchased um, six copies of the book and I keep giving the physical copies away. I keep meeting someone and I'm like, I mean, sometimes I'll meet people who even just read, like at the Net Zero Festival, I met somebody, uh, shout out to Archie if he's listening, and just said, look, you know what? I've got a copy of this book. I think you would really benefit from reading it. Here, take my copy. And then I'll, I'll go back and look at the digital copy later or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm now, I'm helping Akshat sales. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Akshat, Akshat, if you're listening, you know, we'd love to have you. Know, you know, when the paperback comes out, come on the pod. Anyway, um, but I think he's, I think he's, he's coming at this. You know, from a, his, he's got a very particular background. I don't know that someone with his background, without his background, could have written this book in exactly the same way, right? He's got a PhD in organic chem chemistry from Oxford, but he's also coming from a particular kind of background. Um, you know, he's taken that the storytelling ability and his science kind of chops, and he's worked at Quartz, and he's worked at the Economist, and he's written for the Guardian and the and the Journal and the FT, and you know, his lens is just very different. I don't know if you found that because I, I mean, again, he's 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 focusing each of these chapter on on one main character, as you say. Each of the chapters have a name of a kind of archetype, you know, the doer, the wrangler, the businessman. Each chapter, I, I think, you know, he's really dug in on the biography of somebody uh -huh. who has, you know, that their particular background made them the right person in the right place at the right time. You know, Wan Gong in helping to jumpstart the Chinese automotive industry. Uh, but I think he's, he's like his pieces on, on Fatih Barol are really interesting. Chapter five, where, yeah. you know, he, he attributes, and I'm sure Christina Figueres and other people might have a different view, you know, but basically if Fatih Barol hadn't convened the energy ministers right after a terrorist attack in Paris, in the lead up to the negotiations of COP21, then COP21 might not have led to the Paris Agreement in the way that it did. So, 
you know, were there anything else kind of that stuck out to you that, that were similar? Um, well, I mean, I actually found that whole chapter really fascinating because I've been uh, over the last sort of year or so been working a lot more closely with companies in that sort of renewables and, and battery energy storage. Um, and so actually, and I've been I've been you know referencing IEA reports on this as part of the sort of evidence to say, look, we are in that really sort of um, vertical bit of the right. of the hockey stick or potentially S curve, uh, as I know yes. came up in in uh, the conversation with Keaton. Um, and and so learning the history of it, and, and you know, because I my short term lens on this has been that they've always been talking about the renewables aside from mm. oil and gas, and actually getting that backstory mm. um, has been really really fascinating. So I think that's what I found very um, very insightful about the book is for a lot of these. You know, I had a chance to interview and listen in on Unilever back in I would say probably. 2010 at the very early launch of the sustainable living plan when I was involved in judging some responsible business awards and so I know some of these stories on a personal level at certain to a certain degree but getting that sort of real behind the scenes and I think that's what um you know Akshat can bring because he's interviewed you know at times he's quoting the in you know sort of commentary from interviews that he's had with these individuals Mm. so he knows them in a way that perhaps the rest of us don't so it brings that real sort of depth and and kind of flavor to it um, that you sort of feel like you're getting an insider's view. And I think that's what makes it really, really interesting. The great thing about his position at Bloomberg is he's got license, I think, to to do a lot of this long form reporting and also to be able to travel and meet lots of the key players and, and really provide those insights as the background. But for me, the highlight of the book is probably the is chapter four, where he's, he's really focused on solar and he's focused on India. Um, so obviously... You know, there's a personal connection there. He he was born in India. His grandmother was born in a hut. His grandfather worked on a factory floor. His parents both managed to go to university. And they had a business that enabled them to send him to the UK to go to school. And I think there's something about that trajectory and mm. the social mobility of that trajectory that it would be weird if he wasn't infused with a kind of optimism about the possibility of things working out in that way, uh, which I think it comes through so clearly in the book. And I think when he's on the ground in India talking about farmers, talking to this farmer in you know, Pavagata, who is talking about the, the crop failures and talking to this farmer about the solar farm that's been on used on this agricultural land that's allowed him to think that his three daughters mm-hmm. won't be consigned to being farmers. And, you know, there's such emotional resonance in that. And then he talks about the other farmers, the farmers who are having to dig deeper and deeper wells that are not going to recharge and the crops that are not working out and the different crops that they're trying, but essentially that the land is going to fail to produce the food that has enabled a living for these people for generations and generations. And he then brings, you know, drops the statistic from this report in 2017 that 60,000 Indian farmers have killed themselves over the last 30 years because of crop failures due to climate change, yeah. which is just bam. You know, you have this personal, very small, immediate scene, almost narrative of this conversation with this farmer. You're right there. You're in this January beating sun de- sunlight and heat. You're sweating with Akshat. You're talking to this farmer. You're hearing him talk about his hopes for his own children. And then you drop this stat that like 60,000 farmers have died and many more are going to die because of a similar thing. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a, it is a really, really powerful chapter on that level. But I think the other thing that it does is tell the story, which I remember hearing at an economist event just, um, you know, probably about a month or so ago. And it was about how what we actually need to worry about is the deployment of capital in countries like India, across Africa, across um, South America, where there is a real potential to do this leapfrog, um, to kind of miss out the middle step and go from, say, coal or coal or other dirty ways of producing energy to actually find a much more sustainable, clean way of producing energy. And so that's the other thing I think that comes out of this is how did they actually make this work in India, given that the cost of capital is so much higher, um, that you've got perhaps a lack of some of those skills that you might expect in a developing in, in a developed economy. Um, and, you know, have you actually got the political sort of uh, legislation or will in place to make that happen? And because he talks through the challenges that were faced in getting to where they are in India, it sort of proves that it's a proof point. It's a, it's, mm. it's a case study that they say is sort of replicable, um, and I think that for me was, you know, so you've got this really emotional, hard hitting fact that this is, you know, the impact of this is very personal. It's mm. huge and the numbers are scary, but there's also a story of hope there that, it, that it, if it can be done in India, you know, where capital is so expensive because of the inherent risks involved in that, yeah. there will be ways of doing that. There will be other people in other countries who are, if reading this will go, I know I'm sort of feel like I'm stuck but actually it almost gives a, them that confidence that it can do again. And I think that's what I felt through each of these stories. It's like there will be someone else in a similar situation in another company or trying to, to create policy changes that will see themselves in mm -hmm. one of these chapters. And yes. so I'm here, but I'm, I'm a little bit further down the line, but they were stuck and they made their way through it and therefore I can. So I think that was the other sort of heartening thing that came out of it. I, I think that I think that's right. I think also that you know that particular chapter. I mean, there's a line in there that stuck with me, um, which is, and again, you can you can almost hear a bit of national pride. Um, I don't think I'd be shot for saying that um, about the fact that India is has a lot to teach the world. You know, here it is in a you know kind of high interest environment mm -hmm. for lots of reasons he goes into, um, and has been for a while. So government subsidies only could take it so far, and so he goes into great detail about. You know, the interplay between government support and then private capital, you know, kind of jumpstarting this. And also he's got a, a very interesting view on targets, which I think brings us back to where we started this conversation, talking about the fact that when Narendra Modi became prime minister, there was a target in 2014 to get 20,000 megawatts of solar power, knowing that was going to be a better deal for the future with this 20% cost reduction curve. So every time you double capacity in solar, there's a 20% reduction in cost. He talks about the fact that Modi wanted to quintuple the target, which also was coupled with the Paris Agreement. Um, so that by 2022, that 100,000 megawatts of solar was their target. Now, COVID got in the way. Mm. So so only, only 60,000 <laughs> megawatts was achieved. But I think that's an interesting way of looking at targets is that even if you didn't meet a target, I think it's a little bit different in terms of temperature targets, but um, I think that the idea in the abstract that these are useful in mobilizing capital mm. and useful in mobilizing a direction of travel. And I think that's his really good kind of point on the Paris Agreement itself, which is it doesn't force anybody to do anything, but it set a direction that businesses and governments responded to that moved 
a lot of things and gave momentum to things that wouldn't have happened if the agreement hadn't existed in the first place. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Are there parts of it that, that you know, did it all strike you as kind of being bang on for where we are exactly right now in November 2023? It's often the way with books. You write something that's, you know, kind of contemporaneous and then, you know, events come along and then the following months and maybe hit you for sideways. What did you think? Um, I mean, I am an eternal optimist. Like, I wouldn't have chosen to have kids knowing what I knew when I, you know, when I say... So, for me, it hits right and it helps me feel confident mm. that there are, as you say, you know, the book pulls out characters who had the right set of skills, the right level of tenacity, being in the right place or had done the right different jobs that meant when they took on a particular position in a particular organisation, they were able to have an impact that someone else mm. wasn't wouldn't necessarily be able to have. And so for me, I sort of play, it's like a numbers game. The more people who are focused on trying to solve their bit of the systemic challenges that we face in shifting to a net zero future, the more people we have doing that, acting across as this does, it talks about all the different aspects of the system that needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. um, then that gives me confidence. So I think for me, you know, I... I need to read these books because it sort of reaffirms. It's sort of like it's it's firing the fuel for mm. for, for that optimism that that I need. And, and and so it's not that I don't want to listen to to the bad news. It's like mm. okay, so that's bad news. So what are we going to do about it? So I always move to that problem solver. What what do we do about it? And so this is a really great book for helping me think through what are the things that I could be working on or what else right. do I need to be learning about? And which is why, as, as I think similar to you, I'm like, oh, what? there's people I want to read this because yes. I think there's a lot they could take from it that would give them that depth of understanding and grounding in how their bit of the puzzle, their one tiny little piece of this incredibly complicated um, puzzle, but it allowed them to take a step back and perhaps see where they fit into that and then feel value in hmm. solving their bit of that puzzle and doing it to the best that they can do. Yeah, I, I think the the one thing that I, I think if he has a blind spot that maybe this optimism that this, you know, credible social mobility over three generations that is going to just infuse you with that uh, and give you this this view of this can do attitude, which is in almost all circumstances, the right attitude to have. So if you, you look at the book, there's a couple of references to, quote, political suicide, unquote. There's a one part where he des he's describing the idea that there's such a momentum behind demand for climate action. Uh, he says it's at one point, uh, it's growing in popularity so quickly that not meeting climate targets can become political suicide. And he mentions Australia as an example where six prime ministers over a decade get swung wildly on climate policies with the election in 2022, proving, providing rather the clearest mandate to do more on climate. And he mentions this again, essentially that anybody who is failing to meet climate targets is courting political suicide. And I think that maybe that underestimated the possibility, because um, again, he's, he's based here in London, he's based here in the UK, you know, that we would see after the Uxbridge by-election, this 90 degree turn from the current government, where they see populist political opportunities in running against net zero itself, which I think, you know, Chris Stark of the Climate Change Committee, you know, an event I was at earlier this year, you know, was... I think he probably saw that coming and was very distressed and kind of get, got out of his lane a bit to talk about the fact that if, this would be really bad to trash this consensus in this country. Um, and I think maybe, you know, 
when actually I was writing this book, he maybe didn't see that that coming. These political entrepreneurs who might come around to run against the system, as he puts it at another point in the book, you know, businesses and government really, really don't want, they hate, they fear chaos and they fear, um, you know, the inability to have certainty about the future. And that's true for certain governments, but it's not true for populists who see political opportunity in going against that consensus, cultivating chaos. As Steve Bannon, you know, the American advisor to Donald Trump says, you know, he's a Leninist. He sees that as an opportunity to get power by destroying destroying existing consensus. And you can see that in, in Germany. You can see it in France. You can see it here in the UK. Um, and I think that's the the part of the book that I think perhaps is the where there's a bit of a blind spot. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree. And I would say if I had if you were to ask me to name what is the one thing that keeps me up at night that actually worries me, that is the, the thing that can deflate my optimism the most quickly. It is that the, the, the polarization of the debate around this so that we don't even have a neutral ground upon which we can have a proper nuanced conversation about this. It has become you are either somehow over here in this kind of conspiracy place where, you know, net zero is like this completely unaffordable thing and you're completely insane and there's no such thing as climate change. Mm -hmm. And and that's how people are being positioned, which means it's incredibly difficult and almost impossible to have a proper debate because there's almost an acceptance by a a group that sort of polarised themselves over here that that it doesn't exist. And even if it did, it would be too damn expensive. So why are we even bothering? Um, and it's and it's done around personal freedoms. So, you know, even something as simple as the concept of a 15 minute city has become this sort of like you're not allowed to leave your home. You're not allowed to leave right. this tiny defined area. And that is nothing to do with what it's about. But that is how it's being portrayed in a public sort of way, in the same way that net zero is going to be too expensive. It's going to make your bills more expensive when in actual fact. And it was something I was reading about just in in the, the chapter before about the most the first bit of your energy policy is actually um, energy efficiency. You know, right. it's the energy that you don't use, um, and that's actually the cheapest form of energy is the stuff that you don't use. So actually, why don't we reduce down energy use as much as we possibly can? Right. Um, so I think for me that it, that's the biggest scariest thing for me is that if the political will isn't there because populists manage to get in and they manage to create this very um, sort of diverse, um, divisive space in which we can talk about these things, then mm. that is the thing that's going to pull us away from where we need to be going. Well, I mean, to end on a hopeful note, I suppose, you know, I hope that Akshat is correct when he points to, you know, a climate denier in Donald Trump being elected in 2016 in America and yet, and pulling out of Paris, and yet, you know, because of decisions that were taken by large organizations, by even at the state level in California and by other governments around the world, including China, including India, progress continued. And I think that's the, you know, maybe the, the hopeful note maybe to end it on. Um, any final thoughts? Because we, we've got, we both got to go, don't we? We've got a call coming up. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, I think it, it comes back to, was it your conversation with Keetan where you were talking about the, the word unstoppable? Mm. Um, you know, you might be able to slow it down a little bit, but ultimately it's it's the, the shift towards a net zero future is essentially unstoppable, um, that you actually wouldn't be able to reverse it and go back. There is too much momentum in, in the system. So what we'd ideally want is to speed it up, um, but hopefully the worst case scenario is slow it down. Now, you and I know the implications of that slow down scenario is pretty damn awful for a hell of a lot of people 
um, not necessarily living living in you know in 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 the Western world like us, but but I don't think it can be stopped. I don't think it can be reversed. And so I think that's why getting better at communicating in a language that makes sense for people, in a way that enables them to engage with how we can actually create a better future and how taking action on, on net zero is going to be the right thing, I think is the most important thing to come out of this, which is why this is such an important conversation to be having. It just needs to get outside of our bubble, really. Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. So good show, long show. Thank you, Claire, for joining us. Yes, and, and uh as always, you can find our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk where you can subscribe there to get the wonderful podcast with the amazing and talented Claire Brady. Um, hear her dulcet tones um, and also get some bonus content as we released this morning. And you can also find us on all good podcast apps, including Pocket Cast. Thanks to Duncan, one of our listeners who recommended that platform. And I didn't realize that was a walled garden, but we're there now as well. So do also leave a rating and review. It does help people find the show. So Claire, we'll leave it there. Thanks. Take care. Might be just some like crosstalk or whatever that winds up being some good bats for the cold open. (laughs) I love a cold open. Um, Why also I think he's got a blind spot that I'm sure he's not aware of. He might not be aware of, or maybe he is, um, which is that his optimism, which is the kind of optimism... (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) And we're back. (laughs) Can I still hear you? Yeah. Can you hear me? I can't. Oh, dear. No. You've lost me. The wardrobe malfunction. Bollocks. (laughs) Can you hear me? Jesus. Hold on, I'm gonna have to. Co- I have to. I'm gonna have to leave the session and come back. Leave Hold and on. come back. Who expects a wardrobe malfunction on a podcast? I think. Yeah, that's. It wasn't great. Was no, it? no, no, no. To use a strictly kind of, because um, I we're big fans of strictly. It's a bit like when one of the professionals gets their heel caught in their dress, and the the uh, non-professional celebrities doing their best to keep the dance going, but they're just dragging along someone who's just caught up in mayhem. This is why I, I very rarely wear, wear heels. Dress. <laughs> there you are. And seemingly um, need some, some experience in how to wear headphones as well. <laughs> we'll, have to leave, we'll have to leave that to the imagination of the listener. 